You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. And I'm your co-host, Ryan O. All right, and so we have a really special uh, episode today, a discussion, and we have a guest with us. Um, his name is Joe Dagan. And before we start, it's important to uh, just lay, uh, lay out the disclaimer that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on why we do what we do belong solely to the individuals, guests, co-hosts, and creators of the podcast, and not their employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual with whom they're affiliated, which th it'll make more sense why that's important in a <laughs> moment. But uh, Ryan, go ahead and introduce our guest a little. Yeah, so Joe Dagan, uh, you stumbled across behavioral psychology, if I, if I remember right, at Western Michigan U University, and now you find yourself working for BP. Like, how did that get going? What's the story there? Yeah, no, that's right. I did stumble across the field, too. I took my first psychology class, and it happened to be a behavioral science course, and I fell in love with it immediately. Um, I liked science growing up and sort of find this field where you could take sort of the methods of science and apply it to behavior seemed incredible to me. Uh, so wound up going to UNR uh, for graduate school and sort of the rest is history. Just fell in love with the science itself. Uh, and once I graduated, looked around, tried to find a place to work that would be uh, a place to apply this expertise and, and was lucky enough and, and landed a role I really loved. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, what what was it about the field uh, in your behavioral science field that you that really attracted you to it? What what about that work did you enjoy? Um, when I was a student or at work? Uh, let's start with when you were a student. When I was a student, yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember uh, in my first behavioral science course, we had a rat lab, like most places do, where where you have your own rat that you train in an operant chamber to do various things. So you train it to you know pull a lever and press a lever and 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 like pull a chain and do all these things so you learn a principle in class and then you apply it later on in in the rat lab and you teach a rat to do things and i still remember i thought well this makes a lot of sense and it worked really well for me it seemed to be going well everything that was supposed to be happening was happening um you know you'd see these graphs in class that like oh the animal's supposed to behave this way over time and then i'd go in and apply the principle in the lab and it worked and i would think well that's that's really interesting but i still didn't buy in i still wasn't fully <laughs> committed to behavioral science or that science could work for this and I still remember the day I was driving home from class and I was on the highway and someone cut me off and just sort of the natural thing that happens when something like that happens, you feel a little bit of, uh, of anger. Like why, why is this person doing something unsafe? that's risking me, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment where I kind of realized like, wow. So I sort of analyzed my own reaction. Why do I feel this way in this moment? Like, is it magic or is there some environmental stimulus that could help <laughs> explain what's going on? And it, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks that the contingency of this person cutting me off was the reason that I now felt this way. And for me, that was a turning point. And I think for most people that get into behavioral science, most people can describe a moment where a switch goes off for them, where they just can't see the world the same way again. And for me, it was literally that moment where I started to see the world in terms of the contingencies governing behavior over time versus just like magic happens. Yeah. Uh, so, so for me, uh, I, I kind of really bought in from that day forward and, and have never stopped my love for, for this particular science. That's, uh, it's really interesting you say that because I had an almost identical experience where I was like, getting <laughs> cut off in traffic and I was, I was taking my first um, class at the time in, in behavior science and um, really sitting down and thinking about, well, you know, I wonder, uh, I bet for this person that this kind of like aggressive driving has really worked for them. And so like I can see that seeing an opportunity, it'd be like I make the choice right now of 
do I get out ahead of this and get there where I'm going a little bit sooner? I'm like, that makes perfect sense. I could understand that. I've probably done that. You know, so uh, it, yeah, I actually, it's really interesting that you say that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like my story. Um, but okay, so let's uh, on to how, uh, how, where you see this also in your work and like what you, how you apply it there and does it seem to hold up the same sort of way and uh, what, what's, uh, what do you love about it there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm really fortunate. Um, so I work in leadership development right now. So I have the great privilege to be developing courses, running programs, et cetera, for the global population of leaders. But, but in my time with the company, I've, I've, had the, I've had the fortune to work with everyone from the front line through the executive team. And so, you know, fortunately for someone like me, everywhere you go in a company, there's behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's sort of a really rich environment to work in because we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to find ways to create a stronger, safer, group over time and so everything I look at essentially is behavior and um, right now I'm the only as far as I know I'm the only sort of academically trained behavior analyst in the company um, so it's this it's this great wow. privilege to be able to get involved with all these various projects and, and try to help out and, and to work with other people that are equally talented in their fields of expertise and to be on teams of people that are all trying to do interesting things um, to come in with a behavioral science lens is really really fun um, that's, that's really awesome and very inspiring. C uh, could you say more about w what it is you do inside of leadership and, and sort of your role in that? It's a really good question. Um, yeah, sure. So, you know, leadership is the ultimate uh, cure for an ailing organization, and it is the ultimate propellant for a successful one. Um, you know, you will never find a great team that doesn't have a great leader. Uh, so anytime there's a problem or a failure in a company or an incident or something goes wrong, there's kind of two different schools of thought on this, right? Mm -hmm. You can have either a leader who will blame the employees, or you can have a leader who will say, actually, this was my, this was my team, this was my group, this was my whatever, and, and they will be accountable for what has happened. Um, so leadership is a very interesting topic because it, it basically allows you to unlock the talent you have. So uh, essentially for someone like me, I view leadership as nothing more than uh, what someone can do to take a team of people and help that team do more at a higher quality than they would do if the leader wasn't there. So, I mean, as a general assumption, you, you assume everyone wants to come to work and do a great job. Like no one goes to work to do a poor job. Everyone's there to do great work, um, to add value, etc. So the point of a leader is really there's something about how does that person help that team that would do really good work anyway do even better. And for me, that's a very inspiring kind of topic to be a part of. I always wanted to work with top performers, whether mm -hmm. it was athletes or enterprises or whatever it was. I was always intrigued by taking people that were already really good, learning from them, and then helping them with our science get even better. So leadership is a natural fit because the whole purpose of leadership is for a leader to help other people improve. And so in the, in the team that you work with, is, is your role to sort of like train managers and that sort of thing? Or uh, do you just like lead, you lead a, a one particular team that has a, a job that they do? Or, or how does that look? Yeah, so it's a great because, question. Yeah, yeah isn't there like 75,000 employees or something like that yeah, in this organization? Yeah, it's, it's big. I think we have like 60,000 at the moment. It's, it's big. Okay. Um, globally, we're, we, we, have, we have operations around the world. Yeah. Um, very, very complicated group with, with upstream, refining and marketing, shipping, trading. I mean, it's a, it's a big, yeah. it's a big company. Like, I, I just can't fathom like how large this is. So yeah, yeah like, yeah, we're, we're, let's dig in the details. Yeah. Of this, like. Yeah. So it's, it's fantastic. So basically I sit in the group that develops sort of the leadership training curricula okay. for leaders in the business. Um, so that's what I do for you know, 75 to 85% of my time. Okay. Also, I wear a different hat some of the time because I still have some hand in some of the safety programs and some of the other project work. So again, when, when you come in with 
a particular knowledge set, like coming from this particular brand of psychology, once people kind of know that and see what you can accomplish and do, you get pulled into various project teams and things like that. So um, we have teams, for instance, of internal experts who collaborate to set policies, set uh, direction, to review curriculum or content, do all kinds of things like that. So, so I'm fortunate enough for probably 10 to 15% of my time to get to contribute to these other projects that I think are really impactful. And they let me work again with a bunch of other really highly talented, experienced people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fun to contribute to that work and learn from them at the same time. Does that reach to the, the organization around the world and those other locations as well? Yeah. So, so what's really, uh, what I'm really fortunate to do. And again, it's, um, I, it's, it's amazing how fortunate I am to be able to do the kinds of things I do. Um, you know, we develop programs that are global. So we sit in the group team. So everything we do for the most part is for the entire group around the world. So our programs, our curriculums, websites, content, uh, everything we're doing is, is for the globe. Um, there's still some, there's still some one-on-one type consulting I'll do to either individual leaders or teams around the world. Uh, but, but that at this point is a pretty small part of my job in the last couple of years. Yeah. So you said that there's a lot of different people that you could work alongside that have contributed, like those, those perspectives, I guess are pretty unique, right? Um, is there any that you found like really useful for yourself? Like you found yourself really intrigued in since, or is it, I, I mean, I, there's a lot of them and I know that you, sure. you like all those varied perspectives. Yeah, for, for me, there. Uh, so the best story I have for this is coming into the company in 2012. So I joined BP in 2012, and I came into a central team of people that was put together to be essentially the group of internal experts on a variety of topics from, from safety, process management, engineering, uh, projects. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And the team I sat in was the culture, competency, and capability team. And on the floor I worked on, there were, I don't know, maybe 100 people on the floor. Mm-hmm. And just to go around and meet people and start learning about their experiences was absolutely amazing to me because every person there was deeply experienced and competent. So, so for example, on the floor I worked in, I, I, still, I still can't believe the luck I had. I, on the floor I worked on, there were people who had come from the nuclear Navy. There were people that came from you know, aerospace. We had an astronaut that worked on the floor. Um, we had, yeah. And, and what was amazing is everyone has this kind of expertise. And so to come in with this sort of very, uh, very deep knowledge in behavioral science, but that's a very narrow range of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to learn about things like leadership development in hazardous industries or what it's like in the Navy and how do they approach development over time and all these kinds of things. I mean, it was an incredible learning opportunity and every day at work is like that where I get to learn from people and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's cool. That's something I've like personally valued a lot is just like learning from other perspectives. So I can't imagine sitting next to like experts in so many different areas. Especially it's pretty rad. that level of expertise. Yeah. Like, yeah, the elite of the elite. It was, yeah. it was a very strange experience. Like I, I can't believe I get to come here and learn from people. As a matter of fact, I remember when, when I got the job offer, I, I kind of laughed to myself and thought they're offering me a job to come in and do work that I think I can add a lot of value and do really well at. And to get the experience to learn from all these other people, mm-hmm for a job like yes where do i yeah, sign I'll, yeah. <laughs> I, like can i start immediately this sounds fantastic so yeah um and so you said that you're probably the only academically trained behavior scientist in your organization do you th- are there like do you think there's other organizations similar to this that have their own little uh their little czar of behavior <laughs> management <laughs> yeah. well so what i should say is there are a bunch of other people that are really really good in the space so although i might be the only uh, sort of PhD trained academic behavioral scientist, right. we've got a bunch of other people that either have now uh, a behavioral credential or certificate from a university, 
or uh, we've got a couple PhDs in psychology, other forms of psychology. Okay. Uh, plus, there's a bunch of other people that, through experience, through reading, and through their own um, their own programs around the world, there are people that are really good in this space. So I actually wouldn't even know off the top of my head how many there are. So so although I'm the only academically trained PhD behavioral psychologist, there mm-hmm. are a bunch of people that are very, very good in this space. So if you start talking about how to run an ABC analysis or how do you manage a contingency well, um, they're, they're right there with you. And in fact, yeah. they're, they're well beyond that talking about how do you evaluate the systems of interventions to drive particular change. So, so it's a very impressive group of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, in terms of other organizations, you know, again, it's it's pretty incredible. I I only know of a couple other companies that bring or that have brought a behavioral scientist internally. Most times people like me become a consultant and then they work to various groups. But in this case, they brought me in. Um, I can probably only name three or four other companies that I feel like probably have internal behavioral scientists working for them in this kind of capacity. Um, and there's pros and cons to both approach. Um, for me, I really enjoy being internal because we can, we, the longer you're somewhere, the more of an impact you can have and you can follow what you're doing over time to see improvement. Because for instance, you might, you, you might help make a change somewhere in the company today, but you're not going to see the impact of that for two years. And so it's a very reinforcing thing for me personally to see change that happens years later that you had a part in the team that got that to happen. Um, so I, I wonder with consulting if you can get the same kind of feeling from work. It also makes me think, and, and you can weigh in, if you think that being um, in, internal like that has the effect that I guess other people sort of see you as part of their team, maybe less so than an outsider. And if, there, if you think there's any level of buy-in that kind of helps you to uh, participate and do your job um, in a way that maybe has a, a, you know, a greater impact than if you were a little more removed. So it's really, really fascinating. Plus, I'd love to know what you guys have seen working in your careers. Uh, from my experience, different companies respond differently to third parties. So sometimes, if you're from the outside, you're almost given more respect, more credence, more, more authority to recommend changes than if you're on the inside. Um, so I think, in my experience, it just depends what company you're in, whether or not uh, you can sort of drive more effect from the outside or the inside. That's a great point. Um, awesome. Uh, it, I was going to – I had a couple questions for you, but I thought that um, while we're sort of on the topic of just um, h- how you've um, applied what you've been – what you learned at your work, if you could give our listeners a, like, specific example of uh, a kind of intervention, maybe not, not one that you did specifically, but um, a kind of intervention that you know of or, or, or if you want to share one that you've done, uh, applying what you know about behavior science in an organizational setting to make a change for people. Like what's a, what one particular strategy? Yeah, so probably the, the most straightforward example is just some of the leadership development programs we build. It's all about how do you help someone learn how to work with other people in a way that helps them. And so everything from teaching people these concepts of what reinforcement is all about and how to be more self-aware about how they're showing up, and even through ways that kind of don't seem initially as really kind of hard-edged behavior analytics. So mm-hmm. things like when you go and talk to somebody, you know, are you thinking at the front end, how do I want to leave this person when I walk away? 
or what is my intent before I go into this conversation and getting people to a place to think about those things before they engage with people, um, helping people think about what's the other person's agenda versus their own agenda. Yeah. So all of those are inherently behavior analytic, even if we haven't unpacked them in the scientific terms. So it's getting those kinds of things into the curriculum, into leaders' minds. So when they're, when they're working, they're actually engaging with employees in a different way. Yeah. So topics like perspective taking, is that kind of like built into there? I mean, yeah. explicitly taught. That was something that always really interested me and caught me uh, with behavior analysis was, or really any helping profession was like, if you're going to help teach or anything like that, like the more you can put yourself in the other person's shoes, like the better off you're probably going to be positioned, including like having conversations with employees, right? In these leadership roles. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. And so actually for me, I think, um, for me, there was a really big learning curve on the front end where, where I came out of graduate school and had all this knowledge about the science, uh, but hadn't learned much at all about how to apply that in a way that people will listen to or how mm -hmm. to contribute well to a team or how to work with various cultures. And that's, that's definitely not a, uh, a, a criticism of the program I came from at all. It was just I didn't have enough experience yet to know how to work well with people. Um, so this concept of perspective taking, even for me personally, mm -hmm. I had not developed at all. Um, so it was, it was kind of an eye-opening experience to go into a corporate environment and start trying to learn how do you influence people and how do you, how do you be a good team member? Yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate. I kind of look at my professional career as like chapters and like the, the undergrad chapter was like learning what you, you know, are really interested in the grad school, like chapters were like, get good at it, um, in some sort of context. And then like specifically at about the last like four years have been like that ex same experience and I don't know where I'm at in it, I guess, but it's like learn how to really apply and like lead things. And like what I find is like I'm constantly reevaluating, like redefining my pitch, my approach, my, you know what I mean? And like refining how I go about those sort of things. And it seems to be working better. I mean, it definitely is in some ways. So that's great. Well, yeah. well, I'd love to hear more about what you've learned about how to do that and the changes you've made to, to yeah. make yourself more impactful um, because we, we work on that every day. Yeah. I mean, like the one that comes to mind is in, so we do some consultation for like essentially paraprofessionals and uh, special education teachers in the district here. And for them, it was very much, I had to learn how to, really talk about what I do know and what I don't know up front, I think has made a big deal, um, particularly because I am no longer in the classroom, right? But I'm coming out as an outside entity talking about how to work in the classroom. So that was kind of different. Um, I'm also not a parent or, you know what I mean? Like I don't have that perspective. Um, so if I'm saying like, this is the best solution for a child, like that's kind of a weird perspective to take as well. So what I've done is I've done a lot of kind of like upfront trying to understand like where they're coming from and being able to say like, this is what I do have some expertise in, but these are things that I, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you when I am talking about things that I have like professional training in per se, but I haven't really worked on applying as much, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Um, and that seems to have a pretty good impact on people um, particularly more quickly saying, okay, like I'll, I'll, I'll hear you out on what you do have to say, I guess, you know, oh, that's um, such a great story. So, so that really resonates. I have a friend in Australia who's, mm -hmm. who's doing some great work in leadership development and, and he kind of takes the same approach and he's, um, he'll tell people and, and he'll say, look, you know, I, I can't do your job at all. I have no idea how to do what you do. He's like, but what I can do is help you with the leadership side of it. He's like, I, I know that 
part pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so he just presents himself as I, I absolutely don't know how to do what you're doing because you're deeply experienced, knowledgeable. Uh, you got years of experience in doing this. Uh, but for this one facet of your role, I think we can talk about that and improve. Yeah, so exactly. It's, it's the same kind of approach and, and he's been really successful with it. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of, I go very similar with that on, um, Usually it's like, I will get you some bang for your buck in an area. Like we're going to find that, but it's going to be individually a little bit different. Um, especially given for my role, the, the, the students, like the teachers are with the students, you know, every day. Right. And for four or five, six hours, if anyone knows that student more than anybody else, it's definitely not me. (laughs) Um, but when we find an area that they're needing some help in, um, especially if it's relating to something behavioral psychology, right? Like we, I can, I can aid a little bit in those sort of areas. So yeah, that's been kind of my experience, I guess. I've definitely had the experience where I've been in a position to train professionals who have been in their field a lot longer than I've been in mine and sit down and, and try and teach them the principles and been humbled by the fact that I really have to turn to them and say like, well, what's, what's been your experience so far? Like, what would you like to see? What would you like to have different? What has worked and what hasn't? And sort of let them be the, the person who guides the conversation a lot, a lot because I learn a lot from that in a way that I can be more of a contribution to them. And also in the sense that they, um, rather than come in and like make them feel like they're just listening to someone tell them what to do, um, it's more of a dialogue where they're kind of invested potentially in the outcome. And so um, I, I personally don't like telling people what to do. <laughs> um, and so I tend to avoid situations where I have to be sort of a leader. Um, but when I have been in those situations for one reason or another, I feel like I actually, because I'm, I'm in here and really want to have people sort of do their own thing, um, I, I end up being um, okay at setting up an environment where people at least feel empowered to make their own choices, even though there's probably a lot more I could be doing to guide them in making choices that I think would be better as a team. <laughs> um, I, I at least uh, try not to bring to that context a sort of that dictatorship role of like, it's my way or the highway sort of thing. But uh, that's a, uh, I was actually gonna ask you and you kind of segued into this already of just what makes a great leader. Wow, uh, that, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a lot we could talk about in, in this space, but there's probably, you know, two or three things that um, when you read what's out there, that's that's sort of really good in this space, particularly in leadership and hazardous environments. Um, so the first thing I'd say is leaders who are working in an environment that is inherently hazardous, a little bit different than an environment that's not. Yeah. In fact, it's significantly different. Um, in fact, the whole game kind of changes when there's real serious potential risk because of the hazards you're managing. So probably two or three things off the top of my head. One, leaders who accomplish great things in hazardous environments, they are deeply committed to the underlying mission that that group is there to accomplish and the people who are trying to accomplish it. So their number one commitment is to the people and the mission. Uh, number one, two, they learn incredibly fast. Okay. So leaders in these particular environments who, who are really good and who figure things out quickly, um, they will learn from failure, they'll learn from success, and then they'll spread what they've learned as fast as they can to other teams. So the two immediate things I'd say uh, is a deep commitment to the mission and the people trying to deliver the mission and learning. They learn incredibly fast. Yeah, does that include like adaptation, like on the fly, like being able to adapt to things and spread it to their team members in addition to learning things? Yeah, again, especially in a high hazard environment, for sure. Um, very, Very adaptive, in fact, 
being able to take on something new or learn something new that doesn't fit with your current worldview. And if what you're seeing happening is, you know, valid and reliable, then being able to adopt that new thing and adjusting your worldview to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. Because if you see something that doesn't make sense, particularly in a hazardous context, you can't let that go. That a, a great leader or operator or anybody else is going to see that and they're going to want to make sense of it. So yes, definitely an adaptive way too. Okay, great. Uh, how, how would that be different than from a leader in a, like a non-hazardous, um, um, I guess, sort of environment? Sure. That what would make them maybe, are the similar things that would make them a great leader? Or I just, what do you think about that? Absolutely. So it's a great question. So, so there's a lot of differences between environments that are hazardous and non-high hazard. Um, and there's a lot of people that have written really great work on this. Um, who, who have either researched this and, and then wrote down what they've researched or who have gone through it, experienced it themselves, worked with great leaders, and then recorded it. But I'll give you one example. There's a text called In Extremis Leadership, um, and, and this is probably one of the best uh, pieces of writing on leadership in high-hazard environments. And within this, I mean, it explains things like if you ask a room of people what qualities they want in a leader, um, if you ask an audience, you know, what do you want in a leader? And in fact, if you even prompt them with some ideas, uh, near the top of the list will be things like motivation, inspiration. You, you want a leader that will motivate you, et cetera. So in a non-high hazardous environment, you'll find motivation near the top of the list. You want people that are like friendly, that find a way to have good interpersonal relationships, these kinds of things. A really interesting thing happens in a hazardous environment. So if you take a look at people who are you know, uh, professional skydivers or you know, SWAT teams or uh, military in places and environments where the consequences for failure can be ultimate and little errors in performance can cascade into tragedy. In those environments, what actually people want of a leader is totally different. Sure, sure. It's, it's radically different. In fact, things like motivation and inspiration, which are number one in the other group, go to the very bottom of the list. Some of that might... I'm wondering if maybe a reason for that is that some of that might be built in a little bit. That you know the people who are under the the under the that leader, there's already motivation there for the um, to do the, their job. You're exactly right. The environment itself becomes motivating. There's no reason for someone to be an extra sort of rah ha ha in that moment where you're facing the potential loss of your own life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so things like competence goes to the top of the list humans will tend to follow when their life is threatened, they'll follow the person that they deem to be the most competent in that moment to get them out alive. Yeah. Even if they don't have a good interpersonal relationship with that person, that turns out not to matter either all that much. But what does matter is, is this someone that you know is competent and capable to get you out alive? And if so, you will follow that person. So it's really fascinating to get into this stuff and start researching the difference between these kinds of things. Um, and, and that's just a couple leadership topics. There's a whole other issue of the attitude people need to be holding to succeed in those kind of environments. And it's radically different. Yeah, that like totally relates to me or relates to an experience I had literally like a week ago. So um, not that this like validates that as an approach, right? This is argument or the story, but it was so six days ago, went to hike. At the time of this recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went to hike uh, Mount Whitney. So technically the, the tallest mountain in the contiguous, at least U.S., 14,494, something like that. It's higher than Long's? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we, so I set off with five people in our party. Um, one of them I knew really well. It's my roommate for three years. And I've hiked these sort of things with. But one other person I kind of, like, I've, I've hiked with once before. Um, and then two others I hadn't hiked with before. Um, and we decided like you could take the trail for 11 miles up and 11 miles down, or you could take the mountaineering route and have a little bit more fun and go that sort of route. 
So we, we took that up at least. And about part of the way, it was about three quarters of the way up, ran into some ice and snow that we couldn't make it around. Took us about two and a half hours to find, to send my roommate up to like go find a route around how we we're going to get around that sort of stuff. And it quickly it got serious, not scary, but serious enough to where two people were like, yeah, I don't have the skill set for this. Um, we're going to go back to the car and like call it good where we're at. And I was faced with assessing the situation, I guess, as to like, can I personally get up this route that we now need to climb? And I wasn't the leader in that sort of role. And I had to look to uh, my roommate to kind of be that leader in that position. But the other person was someone I didn't even know. Um, we like experienced that same sort of thing. It was just like, we're, the motivation was there. That was not a problem. Like we wanted to hit the summit. Um, and the thing was, is a wrong move was going to potentially cost your life. And there was like distinctly, what, what, what I really like about those situations is like, you can't think about anything else. You are focused, you're, you're making your moves, um, whatever that is to kind of like the next climb, the next step, whatever that is, like there's no errors to be made. You are a hundred percent focused on those situations. Um, but we took it very slowly and we made sure that everybody was on the same page, including with starting with the leader's role, uh, you know, the most competent person there was like, here's the moves to make. And it was step by step by step for about three hours of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, like it's it's really interesting how that flips, because I find myself in leadership roles and other projects. Not as high stakes. Yeah, very. Yeah. Not nearly as high stakes. Um, and I'm find myself trying to motivate and kind of lead and keep people going in those sort of directions, you know, as to like where we're going, what the vision is. Um, in that case, it was like, nobody needed the motivation at all. It wasn't there. It was just like, what steps do we take and how do we make sure that nobody gets hurt or killed potentially? It's a fantastic story. I actually had the, had the privilege to try to hike Mount Whitney, uh, years back. And, and we only got to sort of the last campsite before the summit where there's all the switchbacks. Okay. Yeah. And so we camped there and, and we got caught in some really heavy snowfall and got snowed in. And the next morning we sort of looked up at the switchbacks and just the, the most competent two climbers were like, this is just not a good idea. Like we're not skilled mm -hmm. for this. So we went down and actually Long's Peak, I tried to climb years before that. And the same thing happened. We hit weather just through the keyhole oh, no. and, uh, had to, had to, turn back then. So I've tried to climb both those mountains and have failed on both of them. Ironically. Yeah. I've, yeah. And I've failed on mountains myself, um, because of my physical abilities, but I've also like this one, we were extremely lucky on the weather, the weather, and we didn't run anything particular. Yeah. Those switchbacks are insane. What's <laughs> really fascinating about your story is, is how you say that sort of in that moment where you realize that things were getting serious mm -hmm. and you had to be really careful. The next step really matters. And every step after that. And so you're sort of uh, cognitive focus narrows and you're really paying attention to what you're doing here and now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely a feature of those sort of environments. What's interesting, what they found, um, what leaders are good at doing in those environments is actually not letting that, uh, cloud them to be able to assess what's happening outside of the immediate environment. So they're paying yeah. attention to what else is occurring. So they're not getting too focused on the moment because in that moment of extreme sort of threat or arousal that something bad could happen, mm -hmm. you know, your cognitive focus goes way down. And there are some people who through training or their progressive experiences over time, learn how to not let that happen to the point where it limits them seeing other risks coming into focus. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a good example of that was I, and this is where I defer to my roommate to like pay attention to these sort of things. I would check in on them like every hour, but the weather is really big. Like you're saying, like something can blow in on the clearest of days and kind of get you in a tight spot. Um, 
So I wasn't checking in as frequently, but he was. So when we kind of got to the top after a couple hours of that, it was a little bit, it was much later than we had planned. Um, and there's a lot of really devastating wildfires going on in California right now. All that smoke was blowing in. And so it didn't, it was something I, that just like creeped up for me. And it wasn't necessarily like, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Smoke's kind of blowing in. Um, but when you're at 14,000 feet and then like huge heavy smoke clouds come in, it actually was like impacting everyone a little bit more than we had planned. You know, your eyes are burning, that sort of stuff. And so... On the, one of the, just is a little topic, but it's, yeah. it's, all right, it's a fun conversation. Yeah. Um, one of the things is that the smoke carries with it is with the things that it's burning. So if it's burning a lot of paint or if it's burning people's houses and it's burning like their pesticides or mm -hmm. it's burning other chemicals in houses that are released, that, that stuff... Um, you're basically just getting a deep breath of that every time if you're in a cloud of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that can have, you know, they, they were just talking about, they're really trying to assess the health of the firefighters right now who are out there and they've got their masks on, but they're still being exposed to it in, in such an dense way yeah. that they're, uh, they've got to be really careful about not exposing them in a situation that's going to be yeah. really harmful to them in both in the immediate and the long run. Mm -hmm. um, but that makes me think that probably you got a couple of mouthfuls of something that was <laughs> really terrible for oh, you. Oh yeah, no, it was not good at all. Um, yeah, so I found, to kind of bring back, like I found myself like in the moment, like, you know, when you're like, you have to make a move and there's 1500 foot cliff down the side or the back end of you, like I can make those sort of moves and pay attention to what's kind of around me in those situations. But um, I wasn't, I always try to like reflect and I wasn't perfect in that situation. I, it could be, but like I wasn't paying attention to every variable. Whereas my roommate was very good at stepping back and he was aware of like everything that was going on. Um, and that's why I climb with him. He saves me in those regards. Right. What's, what's amazing is, is those stories of highly trained people who find themselves in these environments where, um, for instance, when smoke is coming in, you know, how do you assess the risk and the hazard and, and do you need to turn around or not? And, mm -hmm. um, probably one of the better things I've, I've read on this, I think is by a gentleman named Lawrence Gonzalez. And I think the book is called deep survival, uh, who lives, who dies and why. And he, he chronicles a series of stories of highly trained, competent people or leaders or teams of people who either survive or don't. And it's, it's really strange to start learning about either really highly trained military people drowning in like a few feet of water because the path they're on, they've crossed this river a thousand times and it's only three feet of water. But this particular time they've underestimated something about it and mm -hmm. they wind up drowning and you think how's that possible or climbers who are all tethered who are going up a mountain and no one no one has the experience yet to to think about when those climbers fall all at once and they're tethered to each other with like 20 feet of rope between them the forces that can be generated when that rope catches a rock and starts swinging people mm -hmm. in like a pendulum fashion, the forces generated exceed anything you would think is possible just because of the physics of the situation. So being able to assess potential hazards, like the smoke is coming in, is this, yeah. is this something we need to turn around or not? gets really complicated the more, the more complex the environment is. Even yeah. things like tethering to other people, is this actually... Yeah. increasing our risk or not and what's possible so it's it's a fascinating area to try to do like really good hazard analysis mm -hmm. in, in particular environments yeah no and it, it kind of it's one of those things it's like a weekend adventure but it has me so interested like you're saying on like working in under elite circumstances and kind of like analyzing those sort of situations so well and you both brought up the point that um i wanted to hit again of the experience when you're in a position where you're the leader versus the experience you have when you're in a position where you're being led and how different that is. And um, and I think and you sort of brought this up earlier, being in the position where you are teaching leaders to sort of be put themselves in a position of those that they're leading, um, but also know that their role is different. 
Um, and so what's your experience with um, both just conceptually understanding the, the position or the experience of the person, the people who are underneath a leader versus being a leader? Um, so I'll try to talk into that space a bit. You know, one thing I'd say immediately is authority uh, never comes from the top down. Authority is granted to you from the people who report to you. Um, and in all cases, again, I think, I think everybody's trying to do a good job at whatever it is they're doing. They're trying to do it the best they can. Um, and so it's sort of interesting if you have an environment that's punishing or punitive, you'll see people do kind of just enough to get by. And the more punishing it gets, the more sort of ancillary behavior you'll see come up, including things that are against the company or team, uh, because folks are just frustrated. Uh, but when you get a really good leader in there that's paying attention to their people, um, they know what each person values, and they're tying that to the point of what the team's there to accomplish, uh, and they're really paying attention, and they're there to serve their people, those followers will will give authority to that leader. They will willingly follow. Um, I, I think there's sort of a general view that sort of when you're the boss or something that people will automatically do what you say or, or follow your leader or anything. And, and in some sense, I guess that's true to a point. But if you want people to really... Uh, succeed and deliver the best they can and feel great about their work and be vibrant, healthy, happy. That is through inspiring people. It's not through sort of telling them or mandating what will happen. It's, it's, through, it's through helping them want to do e- even more at a higher quality. Yeah. And I think um, I, don't, I don't speak a whole lot about where I work, but the leaders there cr- have created such a culture that I honestly couldn't even tell you if there is a punishment system in place because I, I just don't even know because I've never experienced it. I don't know anyone there who has. And it feels like when you're there, everyone is trying to do the best possible job they can because it's important to do a good job in that situation. And they're absolutely not life and death or safety stakes at all. It is simply a matter of um, we really value this work and we really value this uh, our each other. And um, when something breaks down, someone will invariably step up to try and fix it um, as quickly as possible. And then the team will acknowledge that uh, contribution um, just every single time. I've rare, rarely, if ever, and I would say I don't even think it's ever happened that I can recall. Has it been the case that something broke down and everyone kind of looked around and say, "Who's who's going to do this?" You know. And uh, I really attribute that to the fact that the the leaders of our organization took it upon themselves to create a culture where. Um, it was empowering employees to make those sorts of decisions. And so in the being in the position of someone who's being led in that organization and feeling, um, the, I guess the experience that I have is that, first of all, I'm, I'm safe and that I can do things and that as an outcome of even failure, it's like how can we make the system work better is the, the response to that. And also um, the the experience that, hey, I have a, an idea about how we can change that. And then I also feel like I'm listened to when I bring that up. Even if it doesn't always necessarily result in something, I always, the door is at least open that, that I can be heard. And so um, being the person who's being led, um, I, I feel this, um, I really, really appreciate that kind of situation because it's, ex- in my experience, exceedingly rare. Almost never have I been <laughs> in a position where I felt that way about the leaders there. Yeah, so that's just a great story to hear, and it's it's really fantastic to hear that's what your work environment is like. I would guess a couple other things. You probably have low turnover. You have generally happy colleagues who like coming to work. They're energized by it. They're happy about the work they're doing. They feel like they're adding value. They're contributing to something meaningful, totally. all those kind of things. Um, one of the ways I used to start conversations is I would say, um, 
who in the room, and I would usually add, excluding the boss you report to right now, who in the room has ever worked for someone that you think really cared about you? And folks would kind of look around and think for a minute, and then generally most hands would go up. Oh, that's great. And, well, yeah, and, and that's a, a question I'd ask, like, where, where, wherever I worked at the time, I'd say, like, tell me about a story where you think the leader really cared about you. And then I'd say things like, well, um, were, what was it like to go to work in the morning? And was it like energizing or was it sort of a punishing environment? And were you happier generally in life or was that not as good? And what you find is everybody at some point has worked for somebody that to them was really meaningful and good. And then my follow-up on is, is the reason I love my job so much is I get to help people develop that to be able to give that to other people, that kind of experience, which I, I have got to believe is one of the coolest jobs in the world. That's awesome. Yeah, no kidding. So are you are you then the, like the leader of your team and yet sort of what you get to do for your team and then make that, you know, an even bigger umbrella? No, so we've got a team right now of probably 12 or 14. Um, so we sit in what's called the Leadership Academy. So, so I have, I think, five or six peers uh, who do the same kind of thing that I do. And then we've got a leadership team of another three and then a director on top of that um, and a, a much wider uh, teams around the company that we work with that support all the same stuff. So any program that I'm managing or running is not really even quote unquote mine because there's there's hundreds of people involved in making things happen. So it, it's almost like an informal leadership role because there's nothing I do that's exclusively my work. Everything is shared among teams of people that are really big and everybody has to work as a team to get these things to happen. That's awesome. Yeah. I found that's how you like actually get stuff done over that whole, I was saying like the, the this chapter of my life that I'm kind of going through professionally is like, how do you uh, contribute and like make things happen? Um, that's been the number one thing is like, okay, step back and look at, I guess the more open and more collaborative it was, the faster things moved and the better they were. And I was like, okay, like that's, I guess that's how this works. This chapter is called working as a team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, on some of the things that you mentioned, uh, I wanted to hear who who do you think are great leaders that either have existed or are out in the world now or are even fictional <laughs> leaders? Just what are examples of great leadership? Oh, wow, there's there are a lot of people out there that are you know. So I could definitely name names, um, but uh, I think for each person, it just depends on on kind of who they've had the opportunity to work with and the impact that person had. Uh, I've had the great fortune throughout my career to work with and alongside of some really phenomenal leaders. In my experience, most of them seem to come from either a military background, aerospace background, uh, nuclear background. Um, but what's even more fun for me now is to try to start extracting and learning from them what do they pay attention to and what's the attitude they're holding when they're evaluating other people so I can even faster start to assess who are the people that really kind of get it? I think for me, the great learning is is trying to learn from those leaders what resulted in them developing into the people they are and what's the attitude they hold about their work and about quality of work in their own life and what's valuable to them, et cetera, and, and trying to extract what I can to make sense of it. Um, that's, that's great. Um, so I thought we might, unless you have something else, maybe change directions a little bit and just talk a little bit more about the safety stuff uh, that you um – just what that is and uh, what you do with it and that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a huge topic for us. It's, it's a, uh, it, it's one of the values in the company. So I was actually really inspired uh, by some of the things the company said back in 2011 and 12. I mean, they were writing things like we, we will have a relentless pursuit of safety. And I was very inspired by that and have seen that. Uh, and, and so uh, I've had the great fortune to do everything from sort of manage the group efforts in 
behavioral safety systems. So providing group guidance documents, like what should behavioral safety look like and, and what are sort of the pitfalls. I've had a hand in that in the past and, and through that work, I've had the fortune to travel around and consult to teams around the world who are managing these process at assets. So you've got teams of people around the world in refineries, on rigs, on pipelines, managing behavioral safety systems. And so to go around and help them do that uh, and to teach them a little bit more about things they might try next and what's working and what's not working, let's talk through that, um, has been fantastic. On top of that, um, there's a lot the industry as a whole, or, or in fact, all hazardous industries have learned about managing risk uh, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. And there's been this really kind of sea change in the last five years. And it's really exciting to see. It's almost like people used to work in a way of um, assuming that hazards and problems and incidents are caused by a linear series of events. So one thing goes wrong, cascades to another, that goes wrong, cascades to another, that goes wrong. Um, some, some groups still, still think this way, but, but there's a much greater appreciation for the fact that variables in any environment are interacting in a systems way versus a like causal chain of events type way. Right. So you change one variable and that's going to ripple out to all kinds of other things. So the system itself is, is complicated and complex. Um, so in safety, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I have the great fortune to work with probably two or three teams of people that are all trying to do certain things. So one team in particular is a group of internal experts that come from all over the world with backgrounds, again, uh, incredibly diverse backgrounds from uh, psychologists to ex-FAA um, to like really diverse, capable, competent, experienced people. And we do things like look at uh, training programs from other groups and assess, are we doing this kind of the right way? Because you could have a great idea and think like colloquially it makes sense to do something or to say something or to show some particular video and say certain things about it, whatever it is. But if you take a systems approach and you start thinking, well, if I make this change here or I imply something here, how's that going to ripple out into the rest of the company? And it's, it's the ability of people to assess that well that's really valuable. And maybe you're not always right, but there are some similarities you can extract from all the stories of failure through time from the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Um, so there's teams like that in the company that, that get to do these really interesting projects. Um, so I have the fortune to be on a couple of those. Uh, you actually anticipated a question I had coming up, which is to say, like, what would you say is a major principle of safety? And what I heard and what you were saying was that um, one of the major principles is understanding how they work together um, and not that it's always just this sort of cause event uh, reaction. And we've actually talked about a bit about this, and this is um, on in a previous episode. I think it was specifically we recorded one on truth, which I think is out at this point. Yeah. And um, – one of the things that I, I brought up when we're talking about that is people tend to want to sort of point to something and, and blame that and say, this is the thing that if we can discover what that thing is, then we're okay as long as we know who we can blame about this. And um, I, that's, it's bothered me for a lot of reasons. And one of those is that I think that isolating the thing is sort of a topical, you know, we have, um, you know, we can, if we can, if we name it, then um, it, we have, a tiny little piece of it and that's good enough I guess and instead understanding that everything that happens is not so simple and straightforward as A cause B cause C but that there are all of these things that sort of came together in just the right way that it was 
you know, sometimes and probably most of the time we don't notice that that comes out in just the right way that we go around having a pretty normal, perfect day. And that it could be the case that every step of our day could have been, been chaos and tragedy, um, but that just wasn't the way that things kind of came together. And so being able to engineer a system to try and ensure that as much as possible will both prevent that from happening, but also be able to react appropriately to situations when they do happen. Um, because you have those, um, you I guess accounted for more of the context of the situation. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Just I, I, I love to bring that up and highlight it because it's it's so tempting and easy, I guess, to have an answer, a nice, simple, clean answer where we can just say, this is it, this is the thing. Um, and instead, I actually find a lot of, um, I guess, liberty, but also just um, elegance and um, peace of mind in in looking at uh, any problem and saying, like, how does this fit as a part of the system that it's in? So there's a lot I could talk about in this space because I think you're exactly right. And I think science got there a little bit ahead of industry in my experience. So I think in industry, um, globally, kind of the world is getting onto this idea in a big way. And again, I've, I've only seen this in the last couple of years. That doesn't mean it hasn't been happening for a lot longer. But in my experience, it's only been happening in the last couple of years. Um, and sort of one of the best examples of this is uh, in industry, when an incident occurs, large or small, there's the concept of a root cause. Mm -hmm. So root cause analysis is this process basically to figure out what's kind of at the root of something that goes wrong. But my thinking on this is exactly yours. It's like saying, well, if, if you see a rock rolling down a hill and you say, well, why does that rock roll down the hill? The answer to that question is, unfortunately, kind of everything else in the universe. Yeah. And that's not... <laughs> It sounds strange to say that, but that's not a throwaway answer. The idea is, well, if you ask the question, why is the rock rolling on the hill? Well, part of it's the shape of the rock. Part of it's the angle, the slope of the hill. Part of it is the friction. Part of it is the particular force of gravity, because if it wasn't as strong, it wouldn't be rolling. Um, so then you ask questions, well, why is the rock shaped that way? If, if the shape is part of it, what got the rock to be shaped that way? So to, to isolate the root cause for the rock rolling actually sort of notionally doesn't make sense once you dive into it. Um, I think industry is finally on board with this. And in fact, um, a good number of sort of the industry recognized bodies that set policy, write documents, et cetera, are definitely on to these ideas now that these are systems level conversations to be had that aren't like there's not simple solutions. A, a great example of this, I was on a flight not too long ago and there was a young mother sitting to my left and she had her child to her left. And so so I was kind of watching the two of them, and I, I'm guessing I'm guessing the kid was maybe two, two and a half, three. I mean, it was, it was just a little kid, and they were playing some kind of game together. I don't really understand what they were doing, but it was fun as a behavior analyst just to watch kind of what was happening. And what I could see happening, and this story occurred over the course of 60 seconds or less. It happened very, very fast. But um, the child was starting to get a little bit more aggressive each kind of round of what was happening. And the mother was uh, unintentionally giving the child more attention and reinforcement for acting more aggressively mm -hmm. without realizing what she was doing. And I'm kind of watching this out of the corner of my eye, wondering like, how is this going to go? Yeah. <laughs> and within 60 seconds, the child actually hits the mother. Wow. So she just immediately not even trying to shaped up aggression. And the mother then got really mad and like scolded her child. And I thought to myself, you know, it, it's kind of unfair to do that because unfortunately I watched you shape this up. And so to now sort of scold the child for acting aggressively when that's what the environment supported seems off to me. Yeah. I think it's the same kind of idea that that environments get set up that cause certain things to happen. 
And unless we take a systems approach, we're going to miss some of those key variables. But the systems analysis is really complicated because how far do you take it? Yeah. Um, so, so for me, I've kind of always thought you only take an analysis to the point at which effective action can be taken. So if the question is, why does the rock roll down the hill? And what you want to do is get the rock to roll faster. Then you only have to take that analysis to the point at which you get to some variables that would affect the speed of the rock. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love all of that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's really, you've got so many great sound bites in here. It could just be like just an episode of like really clever thing ways to phrase. Something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this is awesome. Okay. Um, I was just gonna say I think that there there are some people who likely have a a sort of cynical approach to um, the. Under, I guess the interpretation that a company that's out there, that they're uh, and not isolating yours at all, but any any major organization that has a lot of stake in their financial well-being, which is you know companies at their heart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so all of them, um, but that their um, their motivation is going to be safety means avoiding lawsuits, and so uh, or at least reducing the amount of money that's paid out to lawsuits. So whatever paperwork we need to put in place to cover ourselves legally so that when our employees are inevitably hurt, uh, we're not gonna be paying out a lot of money for them. Um, and that's probably true for some companies, but I'm, I'm really uh, um, inspired to hear that it, from your perspective, being inside this organization, and not that I had the cynical approach, but I think that probably some people do, and I probably there are some organizations that still have that approach themselves. But um, I just I didn't really belong to that world as much, and I've never worked for a, a huge company. So I'm hearing you talk about the fact that the uh, inside of uh, the the companies that you kn- you know about, um, there has been a shift in the way that they talk about these in terms of developing a, a system rather than just like. How can we protect ourselves financially when we are hurting our employees? It's how can we not hurt our employees? <laughs> oh, yeah. So for every industry I've ever looked at, um, one of the things in my, my past mostly, but I still do it a, a fair amount, is I try to learn from failures. So when bad things happen uh, in industry or in companies or in agencies, um, so use NASA as an example, or use uh, the U.S. Navy's had a, f- a few major incidents this year um, that are really, really tragic. You start to read the accident reports, and you start to try to figure out what went wrong in these companies or for these agencies uh, to try to prevent recurrence, either in your own company or elsewhere. So uh, from the inside looking out and, and from having worked with another a, a number of other companies, um, everybody's got kind of the same goal. And I, th- I think NASA is a great example of this. I, I think, and I might have this number wrong, but I think in every space shuttle launch, there was about 200,000 people that contributed to it. Wow. And, and basically they have one goal, right? Don't let bad things happen, successfully deliver the mission, bring the astronauts home safely and save the vehicle. Like that's the, that's the whole thing. Right. Uh, but if you include Apollo 1, NASA's had three major failures. You know, you've got Columbia, Challenger, and Apollo 1. So how is it that the groups of 200,000 people who all singularly share this, this desire to achieve something great and not let a major failure happen, how does it happen in that environment? And yet it still happens. And, and so for me, um, my entire life, I've been fascinated by big challenges and big problems. And I think these major failures and catastrophic failures are something that I'm attracted to because I want to help contribute to preventing them. Uh, and, and I think, again, that's, that's why I find myself very fortunate because I'm surrounded by an entire company that shares that ethos of we can do this really well and yeah it's hard and complicated but it's worth doing because this stuff really matters yeah um 
That's awesome, man. Uh, that's it's very inspiring actually to hear that. And one one thing I wanted to bring up is I I have the feeling that there's very little that happens in one of these tragic situations where someone had like malintent, like they really wanted things to go badly or they sabotaged it. I expect that that happens rarely, if ever, and that on for the vast majority of situations in organizations, people are doing the best they can and that they generally have good intentions. Would you say that that's been your experience? In, in every major failure across industry and through history that I have ever looked into or that anyone that was there and experienced themselves or was part of the investigation team for and then told me about later, everything I've ever come across, no one wants these things to happen. I mean, these are tragic, horrible things that we're all sort of in service of preventing them. So rather ironically, Space Shuttle Challenger is one of the earliest memories I have. I watched that live as a kid. It's, wow. it's the earliest memory okay. I have. And I, I was too young to know what it meant. Right. I, I mean, I knew the adults were, were really upset about it, but I didn't understand yet the significance of it. And then it would take 17 more years before Space Shuttle Columbia would happen. Mm-hmm. But, at, but at that point, I had, had taken my first intro to behavioral science course, an OBM course, a safety course, and, and now understood, like, complicated systems uh, can fail. And it takes a lot of effort and work to prevent that. And it, it is exceptionally complicated. But everybody's in service of doing that. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I, for everything I've ever looked at, there's never malintent. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Everyone is trying to pursue a mission that they feel is deeply valuable. I mean, if you think about NASA as an example, you know, space exploration is one of the most inspiring um, pursuits, for me at least, that humanity has gone after. Um, healthcare is another one. There, there are all these things people do as groups that can't be accomplished by individuals, yeah. and they all want to succeed. Um, so no, I've, I've, I've never come across a case where malintent was involved in, in a, a major failure of any kind. That's great. Yeah, I think that, that the reason I brought that up was to address the I think there are those that tend to take a very cynical approach to uh, their interpretation of things that happen and want to say, like, this is because, um, you know, people are bad and people are dumb and people don't care. And um, and I just um, I, I don't I don't feel that way about those. And I think that there is evidence to support the fact that people generally are working um, together and are trying to do um, things in a way that is ethical and um, effective and is going to have a positive outcome. Absolutely. In fact, more than that, there's there's now generations of people who have spent their entire careers from different fields, from engineering and from science and psychology and ergonomics and human factors. And there, there are literally generations of people who have spent their entire professional careers to contribute to the entire body of work that is trying to prevent tragedy and trying to improve things like the quality of operations, ethics, et cetera. So it's, it's very inspiring to be part of that lineage of people that are all contributing to something much bigger than ourselves because this is actually worth chasing down. Thinking in terms of how things are currently going both in organizations and politically and just sort of globally around the world, what would you like to see happen and what do you think would be a sign that things are maybe not progressing or even maybe moving backwards? Um, so like just what would be a great outcome that you'd like to see happen in organizationally? Let's go there first. Yeah. So I think from my vantage point, there's a lot of good things happening across industry that I find very inspiring. Um, there's a lot of changes happening in the global world, right? So everything from, um, the impact of technology on things like robotics and, and AI and all these other technological achievements that are coming. Um, that's going to have a huge impact on everything. So I, I'm definitely, I have no expertise in those things. I have no 
expertise in things like the energy market or anything like that. I, I have no expertise in politics. Um, I am a behavioral psychologist. So, so my, my knowledge set is somewhat, the, the range is very narrow. Uh, it's, it's deep, but it's a very narrow range. So for me, uh, things that I find inspiring that the future is very bright. Um, my great passion is in leadership development. Uh, in, in every place I've seen my entire career, um, there's always something about leaders impact on people and, and and that can go outside of the work environment as well how how people go to work and how they go home to their families everything else it's all part of that same package so for me there's something about leadership that no matter what happens in the marketplace no matter what happens politically no matter what happens with things like artificial intelligence impacting things it it all is going to require human beings managing risk and that's going to require really great leaders to help them do that and to inspire them to be even even greater at, at their jobs um, and to help them achieve these things. So for me, I think the future is very bright because I think the importance of having great leaders will continue to be really important. And I think it's becoming even more evident the importance of that. If you go over the last three months, I mean, you can pick companies around the world that have experienced either some sort of ethical breach or violation at some level in the company that has impacted their company tremendously. Um, so, so there's these kinds of issues happening. And you, and you look at that and you think, well, there's there's work we can do to help companies succeed and help people succeed to deliver whatever the mission is um, in a better way. And so I think no matter what comes in the future, I think that need will always be there. And, and for me, that's very inspiring because to, to be able to help people improve their leadership, which then plays out to thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people and improves the quality of their life, uh, for me, that's an incredibly inspiring thing to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um I don't think of any other questions unless you do. No, I'm good. I love this. Cool. Uh, well, I love that we got to cover as much as we did. Um, I I didn't necessarily have an agenda coming in, but I, de I definitely wanted to hear you talk about leadership, and especially in a way that we could um, talk about it conceptually, but also situate it inside of a discussion around real-world sort of um, scenarios, which I think you've done uh, wonderfully. Um, and so I just want to thank you very much for coming here to be with us today, spending time talking with us, sharing your wisdom um, and all of that. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me in. Yeah, yeah. The expertise uh, and real world examples were like perfect. Love it. Like that blend. Thank you. All right, cool. Well, I think with that, we are ready to uh, go ahead and wrap this up. So people can contact us, and then we can contact you, um, and then we'll go that route. Um, but uh, So feel free to contact us. There's always the, uh, the information tag at the end of this. Uh, we can figure out how to reach out to us, and, um, and we'll be in contact with, with Joe. And so, uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. This is Abraham. And Ryan O. We're out.